I think because I was 36 years old having my first baby, I had certain expectations of myself. One, that I would be able to do it. And two, that I would love almost every second of it. Both of these expectations were as wrong as fuck. Hot Vomit, a Ferrochrome podcast. First of all, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I couldn't breastfeed to save my life. My gorgeous and precious infant scream cried for over three months. My husband started a new job and worked more overtime than Angela Bauer and Who's the Boss. And I started wondering if there was a way I could contract a simple but serious, non-life-threatening, but coma-inducing disease and be knocked out in the hospital for three weeks. At no fault of my own or anyone else's, no blame or shame, but just be pretty much in a coma and then have professionals look after my infant, which would be way better for him than this fumbling mess I was in a wide open leopard print big Lebowski house coat smelling like curdled milk and shit with a double pump stuck to my broken nipples. While I bounced my crying slash losing weight baby on an exercise ball in our living room holding a loud hairdryer. The coma hospital vacation thoughts soon gave way to darker thoughts, such as, How are second children ever born? And then the darkest and most self-flagellatingest of thoughts, anyone over the age of 13 who is not addicted to hard drugs would be a way better mom to this poor kiddo than I am. Ouch. And second of all, I had wanted to start a family for a long time. And because I was 36, I thought I had a pretty good grip on things. I had worked through most of my own issues. Yeah, right. And even though I still had a ton of student loan debt, I had a secure job and marriage and felt ready for it. Oh man, the word humbling doesn't begin to describe my long, hard fall on the sharp tip of my self-expectation sword. I was not ready for it. So grateful for it, but not ready for it. I thought I'd be getting a Care Bear stare and instead I got a cannonball worth of explosive gas and gunpowder on all aspects of my being. I remember little things such as being shocked about experiencing painful body image issues again. Like I was a 36 year old lactating 15 year old walking around in my new lumpy bumpy jiggly postpartum body in the heat of summer with nowhere to hide with a high spirited baby who I would sweat wear on my chest while pushing an empty stroller. I was unable to fit myself into clothes, even maternity ones. Another shocker was how beat up I felt. It was like the silver surfer somehow invisibly swooshed into the delivery room and punched every internal and external place in my body, including my tailbone. A big shocker was the hormonal adjustment. The first thing I grieved post-birth? Sex. And I had stitches. What was my body thinking? but I so wanted to be with my husband that I almost couldn't wait the six-week postpartum period. In fact, two days before my six-week checkup, I masturbated, and the lochia, this is the post-birth bleeding that happens to all women, all of a sudden went from blood red to bright yellow. And my Catholic raised self thought, oh my God, I'm the dirty, shameful pervert who is going to have to explain some insane vaginal yellow mustard blood-producing infection to a team of experts at a hospital that even though my hubby was smart, reasonable, practical, and wanted to wait to find out things were cool, I somehow couldn't 
and instead of taking a much necessary shower or nap, I whacked off. Because let's finish the sentence now. That's the mum I am. Another new mum thing? All the judgment. Turns out, when I started to broach the subject of bleeding yellow, the health nurse waved my concerns off right away and said, oh, Loki is a crazy, crazy thing. That's just the end of it. And that was that. Also turns out, even though I was hormonally charged, sex at first was really painful due to scar tissue. Delightful. Another shocker was the steep drop in my confidence and my abilities for anything, especially the more my baby cried. I just didn't think I could do anything right. And then of course came an increase in self-doubts, plus the physicality of sleep deprivation. I realized if anyone wondered if they could be a parent, all they needed to do was be woken up every single hour for two months straight. And if that was still cool, they'd be fucking Mary Poppins of a parent. I also remember sadly cheering in my little galley kitchen as though I won a big client for my imaginary firm when I started and actually finished for the first time since giving birth a sink full of dishes. I said, woohoo, like, yeah. And then I looked at the breast pump pieces, bottle parts, clean mugs drying on the counter and thought, oh, oh yeah. At all hours of the night, I googled how to help infant who hates the world because I was sure his crying meant more than the doctors told me it did. About eight weeks in, my husband's brother's family, consisting of two sane, happy adults and four amazing kids, came to visit. And my husband and I half-jokingly wondered, could we sneak our little guy into their family van when they leave for, say, two to three months, and he gets a good shot at being well cared for with sane, happy people who know what they're doing? And then we can take him back when he's not crying anymore? What do you think? Should we ask? I remember on tough days wishing I could go back to work so that all the onus of this would not be on me. The crushing weight of responsibility, the clinic appointments, the pediatrician appointments, lactation consulting, scheduling first shots, the acid reflux meds, the bladder prolapse, the hours and hours of crying, the internal physio, the in-laws, the visits from well-meaning people who come during nap time, and the EI and baby government documents stuff to figure out and send back in and get sent back and then send back in. All the problems and stresses I had found so unbearable at work suddenly appeared in my mind like magic gifts Oprah would put underneath my computer seat. Even people who were mean to me at work, I would probably bear hug in sincere gratitude to see. That's how hard having a newborn who cried so much was for me. All of a sudden, I understood what work outside the home was. A fucking vacation. The doing this, quote, all on my own part was a bit rough thanks to my 36-year-old island of a life. I had way less friends at 36 than I did at 26, and pretty much all of them didn't have kids. But even so, they were more than willing to come over to hang out. But the problem was, there was no more coming over or hanging out. Not anymore. Visiting with them now had completely changed. I actually needed real help and I had no idea how to ask for it. Talk about humbling. Actually, I had an excruciating time asking for help and would make the mistake of asking for it from well-meaning yet critical and opinionated family members when it turned out acquaintances and strangers were way kinder, especially if your kid has colic. 
Plus, speaking of the dirty C word, I directly blamed my inability to breastfeed on his tummy troubles. I didn't need Hansel and Gretel witches, those stories to come, to tell me that it was my fault. I thought his crying and his pain were my fault because I couldn't feed him. Plus, having a baby cry for hours at a time felt like I was living on top of a racing ambulance with a siren going off at any second and not knowing which direction it would go. Then, the bone-held belief that he was crying because there was something terribly wrong. Whether I could feed him or not, just something must be wrong. And all the professionals I made appointment after appointment to see kept telling me, it's just crying. This will pass. Get as much rest as you can. Ask other people to hold him while he cries and get a break. And I think, well, I don't think there's anyone I gave a cool enough Christmas or birthday gift to who could, I could ask to do this. Plus, they'd be like, you wanted a baby, so deal with it. And then I think, what if he gets brain damage from all this crying? Something must be terribly wrong. Why did I have the arrogance to think I should bring a life into this world? This kid hates life, and he's innocent. Look what I've done to him. I remember at one internal physio appointment, the incredible therapist asked me to stand up off the examining table while still holding up my pelvic floor, and essentially a kegel. It was the final test. There were nodes attached around my anus and vagina, and she had her fingers inserted inside of me to measure the muscle control and strength of my pelvic floor. And I had a top on covered in spit up, down both shoulders, pee, and probably whatever food I tried to speed eat over my baby's head as I wore him and bounced him. But no pants or underwear. But for some reason I was wearing these white sport tube socks, probably my husband's, and they looked ridiculous. And I looked down at them because the therapist was sitting on a low stool right in front of me with her hand where the sun don't shine and my crotch was kind of in her face. And I was embarrassed to be in this compromising position and needed a place to look. So I stared at the socks. I have to say that clenching my muscles like I owed the money with the positive and expert guidance of this therapist fixed my birth injury, a bladder prolapse in no time. And I will be forever grateful for that. But back to staring at my socks. As I was looking down trying to hold this compromising 30 second pose, I saw one teardrop of lube run from my vagina down my inner chubby thighs and into my left tube sock. And I thought, you know, I never imagined this having a baby. I imagined him in my arms smiling up at me, but never a teardrop of lube running down my inner chubby thigh while a stranger has her hand up my vagina in the hopes to help me pee better, have a better life, and maybe have sex again. But this therapist did me one better than the exceptional work of getting my pelvic floor intact. She told me about her third child who had colic and what a nightmare it was. And all of a sudden, it didn't matter if I was half naked in white sports socks, standing up with lube running down my legs. It was like I was given a free pass into a secret chamber of answers and comfort, and I could be real for a moment. I said, I'm so scared I'm doing him wrong. She said, you need to put him down and get a break. How many hours would yours cry in a row, I asked. She said, three or four. What did you do? I would put him in the crib and hold his hand and laugh and coo at him and tell him this is going to pass. And I would check on him in a few more minutes and then I would leave to take breaks for myself because I needed them and I wouldn't worry about him. I looked at her, the lube already soaking the top of my sock, my pelvic floor muscles passing this particular test of strength. And I said, 
I hold him all day and bounce on an exercise ball around our apartment and let the vacuum or hairdryer run, and I wear him at night, and it seems to calm him, although not completely, and I feel like I failed him, and I failed my husband, and I failed at life. She removed the glove from her hand. Put him in the crib, she said. You need to take the break. It will pass. I remember when I weaned my son at only seven weeks old and for the first time in public took a pre-measured bottle of formula powder and shook it up in my sterilized bottle of water and sat on a bench in the sun and felt like I was committing treason but was determined to normalize my situation and start enjoying my time with my wee son. And of course, a lady zeroed in on us with one of those incredulous looks in her brown eyes and a huge grin that could only mean malice. And by heart, she recited all the chemicals that are in formula, loudly, with the intent to shame me. And did I know what I was doing to my child's brain right now? That the tins of formula have labels on them like cigarette packs, and for good reason. She was righteous and furious and kept this huge grin on her face, like, gotcha, you fucking piece of shit of a mother, gotcha. And people on the benches in the park started squirming on their wooden seats, not looking, but looking and looking at each other in that polite Canadian way that meant no one was going to do anything, but they were uncomfortable. I felt so vulnerable. Seven weeks postpartum with the accumulated sleep count of maybe 16 hours in that time. What this lady didn't know was that I fed my son every hour to an hour and a half using a nipple shield, taping an SNS tube to my nipple, inserting it and reinserting it in the side of his mouth when it fell out so that he got formula and my breast milk and didn't starve from my underperforming boobs. And then after those frustrating feeding sessions and burping him and calming him, I would pump, double pump. I took Dom Peridone and different herbs and teas. I had paid for milk from the human milk bank, begging our care providers to deem our reason for needing it as very important so we could keep qualifying. That my son was born tongue and lip tied. That I had had a breast reduction in 1995 when I was 17 years old. And one of the stipulations was that I would never be able to breastfeed. And at 17, I thought that was a fair enough trade to go from a walking target back to a human being that I was hand-expressing before giving birth to coax colostrum out of my breasts, that I had made several appointments with a brilliant lactation consultant starting at three months pregnant to come up with a game plan to get as much breast milk into my baby as possible, that I took underground milk from moms I met who were willing to pump me a few bottles in exchange for very little for their liquid gold, that I even got 20 odd some bags of milk from a mom who was moving and realized she wouldn't be able to keep it frozen for as long as she needed to. That when I would take a hot shower, I would have a syringe nearby so that if my boobs started to leak milk, I could catch it. Every tiny drop counted. That even with all of that, with all of that, I was able to produce about 30% of what my son needed. And we knew that was the number because I had a portable scale I would weigh him on before and after a feed because he was losing too much weight and crying all the time, likely because he was hungry and uncomfortable and frustrated with my lackluster boobs. And in the lactation consultant's friendly examining room, she weighed him too before and after a feeding and did the math and told me 30% and then looked at me and my large, flat, underperforming nipples 
with chip crumbs stuck to them, of course, for a very long time. Then she quietly said, they make formula for a reason. There's no shame in feeding your baby. And it still took me a few more weeks to give in to the fact that I was unable to breastfeed. And when she called to check in and I said, I'm weaning, I decided I want to enjoy my son and get to know him and not be hooked up to a double pump writing down ounces of everything he's eating and keeping track of his poops and weight and crying. I guess I gave it my best shot. She enthusiastically replied, Oh my God, this is the best news I've heard today. I am so happy. You gave it about 12 best shots. It's time. You're going to drive yourself crazy if you don't get more consecutive hours of sleep. And it's not good for your entire family. And that day at the park, when the righteous lady approached me, was my first day out in public with my son without having breast milk in a bottle or trying to breastfeed. And I had nothing but formula with me. And within about two minutes of feeding him, This lady with shoulder-length hair, blue jeans, and a button-up blouse, and a huge mean grin plastered to her face, found her way to us and went off like a pistol. And I could feel physically the molecules in my body separate and become air and space, and I felt far away from myself in the ground and my oblivious, hungry son who was sucking up the toxins like they were candy, and the shame made me feel like I was six and lost in a swamp, but I managed to smile back. I managed to give her the benefit of the doubt. I took a deep breath. Maybe she thinks she is saving babies from horrible formula feeding mummies like me by hollering at us in public. Maybe she thinks she's actually helping. Thank you for your concern, I said. It's nice that you're so concerned about all the children. And then I turned back to my son. She wasn't gonna go away that easily. She took a step closer to us. Would you drink that stuff, she asked. Would you drink it? And I sighed and said, with the right shot of rum, absolutely. And her jaw fell to her sneakers and the people on the benches closest to us shifted uncomfortably. And before the red in this lady's face came out as words, my husband, who had been sitting beside me the whole time on on his lunch break, spoke up and said, My wife had to have breast surgery. She tried everything, but is unable to breastfeed. And this lady deflated instantly. Didn't deflate completely, but stepped back. She switched tracks and said, I hope you're not using a big corporate brand formula. There's more organic and better baby kinds in health food stores. Plus, those stores do great harm to many people. And she was about to wind up over what brand of formula we were using. But my husband said, okay, thanks. We're going to get back to what we're doing now. And she slowly walked away with the same huge, mean grin on her face, her self-righteousness following her like a cape. And I started to become unfrozen and unstunned on the spot with my feeding son. The people on the benches around us got up and left. Maybe their lunch breaks were over, but I felt like it was because they pitied me. About 20 minutes later, another lady stopped us and said, Oh my gosh, such a tiny baby. I'm a grandmother. Can I look at your beautiful baby? And we were burping him, and she seemed so nice. Maybe it would be a way to cleanse the palate of the Hansel and Gretel witch we would just encountered. And so we stopped, and she asked if he was colicky. And I said, yes. And she said, colic is the greatest gift from God, because it will teach you patience as a person. 
and I thought, okay, hmm, I'm not sure what I think about the whole God part, but maybe I can get behind the idea that it's a gift eventually. And then she looked me in the eye and said, you're breastfeeding, right? Because formula causes them great pain. Their tiny stomachs aren't made to withstand formula. And my husband was about to say something when I said first, well, he was breastfed, but we had to switch. And she said, that's why he's crying, honey. And if I could have murder-suicided my entire family so that we would never run into another person again, I would have. But all I had with me were a few spit-up-covered receiving blankets, and that wasn't going to do the trick. Then, if you can believe it, we were stopped one more time. My husband was carrying our little guy in a gas-relieving way called the football hold, and a baby boomer couple gasped on the sidewalk and said, Oh my God, such a little baby. What is the baby's name? How old is he? And they gave us huge smiles and tried to block Jay's way on the sidewalk. And Jay put our baby on his shoulder and almost used the baby's body and his own as a way to plow through the inquiring couple. He showed up behind him, seven weeks old, and never broke for eye contact or conversation. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, and kablooey goes my husband. The confused, baffled look on the couple's face, who just wanted to congratulate us, I'm sure, and the image of Jay running through them with our fussy infant, unwilling to hear anything they had to say, still makes me giggle. I was walking much slower behind Jay and the baby and gave the couple big smiles and said thank you and have a good day when I passed. There was one baby boomer couple who stopped us when they saw the football hold Jay had her baby in, and I remember they reached out to touch me. And they said their firstborn cried all day and all night, and they would walk the neighborhood holding his tiny body like we were, and they felt like zombies and had no idea what to do. And that was 40 years ago, and it still gives them tremors. They looked as shell-shocked as I felt, reminiscing about it. And then they said, we have three kids and grandkids, all healthy, all grown, a wonderful family. It worked out, and it will work out for you too. And I will never forget this couple. I'm just so grateful they reached out to talk to us. The next morning by myself, I went to the park close by where we lived. It's a busy park, and all the benches were full, so I laid out a baby blanket on the ground in the middle of it. I took out my pre-measured cup of formula and my distilled bottle of water and shook it loud and proud, not discreetly behind the diaper bag like I would have, but right in front of my face like a fucking maraca. All right, I thought. Breen it, world. You've got something to say about how I feed my baby. I'm ready. No one approached us. No one even really looked. My little guy was quite happy to get his bottle. It was shortly after this that my son smiled at me for the first time, and the light in his eyes lit up my entire body. And I held him, astonished at my good fortune that he had picked me as his mummy. This fumbling, big Lebowski, housecoat-wearing, forever in student loan debt, anxiety-ridden, bad-boobed 36-year-old. Me, Grover, the monster at the end of this book. The one with the shitty coping skills and few friends. And this little guy chose me. And my eyes filled. Then I felt a profound grief. Because if all went well, I would not see this person live until the end of his life. I would likely not know him in his 40s or his 50s or his 60s. I would not be there in the end. And I would not get to hold him like this ever again.
slowly I figured out how to live with the crying, how to help him the best I could, and help myself. Phone calls with friends, hair dryer, vacuums, celestial noise on an iPad, blackout curtains, a sleep toy in the middle of our bed, sleeping him on his belly, less clothes on while he sleeps, bouncing on an exercise ball, dancing with him in my arms while saying shh, 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 keeping the Mindy Project and Seinfeld on a loop, sending dark humored texts to my husband, and posting anonymously on scarymummy.com. And maybe most importantly, I learned how to hold him while he cried and not try to stop it. He completely stopped the colic crying at a little over four months old. One day it was like the storm was over and he was the happiest, most curious, independent explorer, not only loving life, but wanting to take it by the balls. And we took him off the acid reflux medicine at almost six months old. And although we remained terrified of it, the crying did not come back. And I said to my best friend who used to call me and stay on speakerphone while he cried in the evenings, I think he is an ambitious baby. He just can't wait to not be limited by his physical self and get out there and shake things up. And she agreed. It was a way better way to think of the crying. On the elevator up to the pediatrician's office for our last specialized visit, I felt confident. I was about to say adios to this first confusing, hazy infant stage. My bladder was now back in place, my stitches had healed, and my baby was no longer crying for hours and hours a day. I still had no idea what I was doing, but I was a lot more comfortable with the uncertainty and with not knowing what I was doing. And in the waiting room, a mother with two elementary school age kids watched me and my baby closely, and she said, My sister gave birth a month ago, and her baby won't stop crying. She doesn't know what to do. I don't remember my kids crying like that. You're so lucky with your baby. You look happy. And I smiled at her and said, Oh, this. This has just been for a few days. He cried too. Tell your sister she's doing a great job, and if you can, hold her baby for her while she takes a really long nap. And the woman nodded. On the elevator down, a young person, maybe about 25, came in and gushed over my tiny baby boy. Oh my gosh, he is the cutest thing I've ever seen, she said. Then she looked at me. Tell me the truth. What's it like to have a baby? And normally I'd be surprised to be asked something like this, especially in an elevator or anywhere. But after the couple of fucking months I had, I would have shown her my bladder prolapse if she wanted. I said the truth. She nodded. It is the best and the worst thing to have ever happened to me at the same time. And the best can't be separated from the worst. She moved her head back and told me she was not in a relationship but very interested in kids, but no one is honest about it. And then she smirked, until today. And I said, it's the best though, you've got to remember, it is the best, but it is also the worst, it's the worst. And she stepped out of the elevator and thanked me. You gave me something to think about, she said. And now three years later, I'm about to do it again. I'm told it's much different the second time around, not only because the baby will be different, but I will be too as a parent and as a person. I've also been told, don't expect the work to double, but quadruple and take you down hard. And I've got to admit, the idea of colic and all the uncertainties and mysterious ailments has me shaking in my extra-large maternity undies a bit. I know this is the last time I will be pregnant and have a baby. 
Am I brave enough this time around to feel everything? To not miss the moments? To not get so caught up in the feedings and diaper changes and carrying a portable scale and the breastfeeding sagas and just witness a baby? A newborn baby? I remember the first few months of my first son's life struggling with the fact that I was now someone's mother. And instead of pumping up my engorged breast chest with pride, I was hollowed out by terror. Everyone gets so fucked up by their mother. Why hadn't it occurred to me before now that by getting pregnant and having a baby, I was becoming someone's mother? Some innocent thing that never asked for me to be unleashed on them. Augustin Burroughs, Running With Scissors, Mark Marin talking about his mom on any given podcast, Lucille Bluth of Arrested Development, or Estelle Costanza from Steinfeld. I was forcing my way into someone's life as, as a seminal role. Up to this point, I kind of skirted along in life in the background, able to disappear and reappear and not matter much to anyone. But all of a sudden, I made myself center stage in someone else's life. I should know what I'm doing, but I don't. And I realized that all of my limitations and issues would probably deeply affect my child. Why did I not think of this before? In my love haze of growing a family, a little team of three out there bike riding against the world and making art and music and working hard and learning to grow vegetables, P.S. none of which we've done yet, in any one of my fantasies I didn't once think, oh yeah, all the fucking weird things I'm afraid of, uh, my student loan debt, bad decisions, the inordinate amount of brain space I use up feeling bad about the cellulite on my thighs rather than getting more politically active, uh, my shame and self-imposing limitations and hidden shitty beliefs. Bingo, you've got it, kid. That in your blue eyes. You're welcome. But what I didn't realize is that your child teaches you way more than you can. And that despite how important you think you are, your child's pretty tough and seems to grow anyway. That in fact, whenever you become a parent, that's where you start. You start where you are right now. But like an infant in their first year, you too grow exponentially. Hot Vomit, a Ferrochrome podcast.